I've got a sore throat, so I'm going to need to get some water this morning. Apologies for that. And I'm forgetting one more thing, because I'm also getting old, as pointed out by Ed. Appreciate that. And I also don't know if you caught it, but Fred used an image that kind of made me think that we're the coffin here. He said it was a nail in the coffin to come here, and I, uh, you know, this is all kind of coming together in my mind, like we're that old that we're the, we're the coffin here, but anyhow. Well, um, thank you for being here this morning, for being online uh, with us. Those who are watching online, it's always an honor to have you, and so just grateful to be with you. Um, you're catching us in the middle of a backstory series. This is our series right here, and to, to kind of frame that up quick, we're talking about people who uh, are... We have their stories told to us in what we call the Old Testament, um, a part of our Bible that is older than the newer part, if, I, if you can put it that way, thousands of years ago, people who followed God in different ways. And we're looking at a portion of their story and kind of asking what can we learn from them and even what can we learn from our own personal backstory in light of their stories. Uh, this morning, to kind of get us started, I just want to share uh, a brief story about uh, this man up here. Some of you may know who this is if you're a history buff, but I'm just going to tell you quickly um, about this individual. And this, this individual, when the Revolutionary War broke out between Great Britain and its 13 American colonies in April of 1775, this soldier joined the Continental Army. He was acting under a commission from the Revolutionary Government of Massachusetts, and he partnered with Vermont frontiersman Ethan Allen and Allen's Green Mountain Boys to capture the unsuspecting British garrison at Fort Ticonderoga in upstate New York on May 10th of 1775. Trust me, this is going somewhere. This soldier, uh, he grew to become a, a hero in the Revolutionary War. In 1776, he hindered and stopped a British invasion of New York from Lake Champlain. And the following year, he played a, a critical role in bringing the surrender of um, British General John Burgon's army at Saratoga. Now, in 1779, he was appointed commander of the American fort at West Point, New York. A very prestigious honor to be appointed the commander at fort, the fort in West Point, uh, New York. His name is Benedict Arnold. And he felt like he never received the recognition that he deserved for all that he did. And so, you know this story. By the end of 1779, he had begun secret negotiations with, with Britain to surrender and turn over um, this fort in return for money and command in the British Army. And after the war, which ended, of course, in victory for the U.S., uh, the Treaty of Paris was established in 1783, and Arnold resigned in, uh, resided in England. The British didn't trust him either. <laughs> they regarded him with ambivalence. And while the U.S., in the U.S., or in the, the, the colonized space at the time. Benjamin Franklin wrote this. He said, Judas sold only one man, but Arnold sold three million. Today, his name is synonymous with betrayal, of course. And as, as young adults get married and think about naming their children, I can't think of anyone who's ever said, here's a baby name I'd like to use. Benedict, right? Benedict. In fact, the only Benedict that came to mind when I was thinking about, well, who in the world is named Benedict is, uh, you know, this guy. Remember him? Ocean's Eleven, Ocean's Twelve, whatever it is, movie. And he's, he's the, uh, doesn't he look crooked, just even as he is as a character? He's in the movie in which he's the crooked casino owner, right? And trying to, um, you know, protect his wealth from people and get, gaining wealth on the backs of other people. But, but nobody names their kid Benedict, and there's a reason for that. 
because that name just holds betrayal so strong. No one in the world that I know does that, who knows this story at least, all right? who knows this story, who's a part of the U.S. culture and system. But sometimes, sometimes I'd argue that life treats us in a way like Benedict. It can be like a Benedict to us. Things that we thought were going to go well all of a sudden don't, and we have to deal with the fact that we feel betrayed. And the question I want to ask this morning is really this question, how do you remain faithful to God when you feel betrayed? What do I mean by betrayed? Because you might say, well, I don't know if I've ever really felt betrayed. Um, if you ever, st- <laughs> how many of you, let me ask you this question, have ever been behind someone at a red light, the light turns green, and they don't go? There is a social contract that they have just violated, and you have been betrayed. We all know that the good and right thing to do is to go. <laughs> when they don't do it, that's a betrayal of what we all know we should do. We've agreed in society this is how we should function. It's as simple as that's what I mean by betrayal. Life, we expect to deliver us certain things. We get married. We expect it to kind of go up and to the right. We work out. We expect health to go up and to the right. We go through counseling. We expect healing to be linear and progressive. We have children, and we think, by and large, if we do the right things, they will follow suit, and we can handle some of the hard things, but by and large, it will be okay. We never expect the harshest and hardest of things, and life can give us betrayal, if you will. And how do you remain faithful to God when you feel betrayed, by him or by life itself? There's a man in the Old Testament whose story I want to look at with you this morning. His name is Joseph. And Joseph, when I think about betrayal of all the things that have gone wrong in the world for him, he was one that rose right to the surface because so many things went wrong for Joseph. So many things went wrong for him. Um, The story of him, I'm going to tell broadly, um, and I'm going to put the scriptures up on the screen here this morning because uh, there's just too much to tell. to to flip through all the pages in our Bibles this morning. But but Joseph's story uh, begins in Genesis chapter 39. It's kind of where I picked that up. But in Genesis, we read about Joseph, and he was was the favorite son, um, and and his father preferred him. And that may seem like, well, that's not that big of a betrayal, but let me put it this way. Let me me read this here. Genesis 37, verses 3 and 4, we read it this way. Now, Now, Israel would be his dad not the nation, but his father, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. Then we go on. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. This is a betrayal, first of all, of parenting. You don't have that kind of favoritism in the home. You may not realize it as a child that this isn't healthy for a kid, but this is where it begins for Joseph. Joseph doesn't help his cause because he has a couple dreams, and in the dreams, the, he interprets them and tells his brothers and his parents, basically, there's going to be a time when y'all are going to bow down to me. You know, you can imagine how well that's going to go if you talk to your siblings that way, especially when you have multiple siblings and say, hey, in the future, guess what? You're bowing your knee to me. So his brothers who got angry with him um, were out in the field, and Joseph one day went out to find him and went out way out to find him. Took the, the journey took a little while, and when he finally got out there to find him, uh, his brothers said, oh, look, that's Joseph coming. And they already had this, this rage building up inside them. They said, let's kill him and put him in the, the cistern or the well here. Reuben, the youngest brother, was like, actually, let's not do that, but let's just stick him in the cistern and, and you know, beat him up and put him in there. And, the, and his plan was to come and get him later. So they beat him up and they put him in the cistern. And then they, as they're sitting there, I don't know what they're doing, having a cookout, eating hot dogs, I don't know what they're doing. And as they're sitting there, then there's a 
basically a trading um, group that passes by, to which they say, you know what, let's sell him to these people. And so they pull him up out of the cistern, they, they sell him for, uh, you know, exchange of money, they sell him, and then off goes Joseph out into the sunset, never to be seen from again. And guess what? He didn't have his cell phone on him. So it was hard to let anybody know that my brothers literally tried to kill me, and now I've been sold into slavery to a foreign country. Can you imagine some of the anxiety that that might produce in you? Some of it might produce in me. And so he goes off with these band of traders, and he gets into Egypt, and they sell him to a man named Potiphar, who is in charge, who who has a role in um, Pharaoh's kingdom. He was an important man. And so all of a sudden, Joseph, I don't, I don't know how bad a day you have had this week. I've had a couple bad days here and there, and maybe you have had too, but my days haven't been as bad as I woke up, my family tried to kill me, then they sold me to a foreign power, and then that power is enslaving me, and I have no capacity to tell anybody about it. Have you had a week like that? And I can just imagine in me, at least, if we really allow the humanity of this to sit with us, I can imagine for a minute how um, disoriented and bitter and frustrated I would grow. Like, I, I don't even know how I would function in that environment, how the fear that would overcome me, the uncertainty about the future. This is a real, real problem. And so he is in Potiphar's home, and he continues to serve, because what else is he going to do? He can't really send a smoke signal home. I mean, this is his life. And so in Potiphar's home... Joseph, who was probably in his early 20s by then, good-looking young man, apparently catches the eye of Potiphar's wife who wants to sleep with him. So she approaches him, and he rejects her, and she is not that excited about that rejection. That love spurned makes her tell a lie to her husband, Potiphar, and here's what she says about that. She says, when he comes home, she says, that Hebrew slave that you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak behind me and ran out the house. When his master heard the story of his Potiphar, his wife saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Makes sense. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And so now he's going to prison because he was a man of integrity as a slave, sold as a slave in a foreign power without the ability to talk to anyone who really supports him at home. And so now he spends X number of years in prison. We're not exactly sure how long. And in prison, he grows in respect for the the prison warden there. And then at some point in the future, the cupbearer and baker of Pharaoh come down and they're in prison because Pharaoh is not happy with them. And at some point, they have a dream in which they uh, share their dream. And Joseph says, I can tell you what your dream means. And to the cupbearer, he says, you had a dream about vines and vines growing and the grapes coming off of that and into a cup, and then you handed it to Pharaoh himself, and here's what this dream means. In three days, you will be lifted out of here, and you will be returned to power in Pharaoh's court. And when you are, I just ask one thing of you. Please do not forget me, because I am here through no fault of my own. So the baker sitting in the corner hears this story, and he's like, well, this is cool. That's a good interpretation. Hey, Joseph, guess what? I got one, too. Listen, I dreamed that, I, you know, it was me, and I had, this is weird, but I had three baskets on my head. It's kind of weird. The bread was in them, and um, I don't know why, but birds were coming down and, and eating the bread out of the baskets. That's kind of weird, isn't it? Joseph's like, hey, let me tell you your dream. Three days, you too will be lifted out of this prison. They're going to cut your head off, 
They're going to impale you on a pole, and the birds will eat your flesh. Anybody else have a dream? And indeed, that is what happened. So for Joseph, Joseph, all that he's asking for this chief cupbearer is to remember him. So what happens? Here's what happens. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. He goes up, and those dreams come true, and he's pulled up back to Pharaoh's court, and now the chief cupbearer forgets him. Like, how do you forget him? You just were in prison with him. He forgets him. How long does he forget him? The next verse in the text in Genesis 41 says this, when two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. For two more years, Joseph sat alone without hope in the prison, continuing to do what he does, and Pharaoh has a dream. Now, I don't know how you're feeling about all this, but I'm thinking about the betrayal of life for a man named Joseph who's stuck in a prison for two more years. He sits there. After X number of years in exile and being sold and being honorable, and nothing seems to be working right for him, and then all of a sudden, he gets pulled up to Pharaoh's court because Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh has a dream. He doesn't know what to do with it, and his wise man can't figure it out, but then the cupbearer was like, oh, shoot, like, I forgot to remember a guy. There was a guy in prison. I think he might be down there right now. There was a guy in prison. If you go talk to him, he told me my dream, and it came true just the way it was, and so Pharaoh calls Joseph up. And he tells him his dream. And here's the here's deal. I just want you to imagine for a minute being Joseph. You're pulled out of prison, and the text says you were um, changed and shaved, and you're presented finally before Pharaoh. How bitter are you right now at God? <laughs> Do you still have your faith in God? And from a human level, nothing is worked out. Everything is going against you from so many levels. Where are you at right now in your walk with God? Because here's your opportunity, all right? Your faith in God has not worked out or delivered you good things in life to this point. If anyone's looking at you, you're like, whatever you're doing, Joseph, I don't want that. Your brothers tried to kill you. You were sold to a foreign power. No one came to help you. You did the right thing. You got thrown in prison. You did the right thing again. You stayed in prison. Like, I don't want whatever you have going on. Like, I'm not sure that I, I want that. And so here's Joseph standing before Pharaoh, and here's his chance to finally get out from under whatever he was doing before and, and make a name for himself. This is his chance finally to get redemption. And Pharaoh asks him, can you interpret my dream? What a powerful question, because if Joseph says, yes, I can, then all of a sudden he is going to have incredible power. He is going to have it. And you know what Joseph says? Here's what he says. I cannot do it but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. What a, what a ridiculous amount of faith, if I can be honest, given the circumstances. Given the circumstances, here's your chance finally to get out from that silly faith that you have held for so long. All it's gotten you is major trouble and hardship. And in that moment, you say, no, I can't do it. But I haven't given up on God, and he's going to do it for you. Seriously. That's what he says. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. Why is that the case? Here's something that shows up, five words that show up in Genesis 39, three different times. Here's what shows up. The Lord was with Joseph, Genesis 39, 2. 
A couple of verses later, we read this. The Lord was with Joseph, Genesis 39, 21. A couple of verses later, we read in Genesis 39 again. The Lord was, was with Joseph, Genesis 39, 22. Silently, if you will, in the background, the Lord was with Joseph. He was with him. He was with him. And Joseph, in some ways, felt that and understood that despite the terrible circumstances. Which leads to the question, how do you remain faithful to God when you feel betrayed? How do you remain faithful to God when you feel betrayed? How is it that in that moment of decision, you get to stand before Pharaoh and say, you know what, I'm not going to give up on this God. I can't do it, but God will do this for you. Even though nothing seems to have worked out at this point, how do you get there? Before I answer that, I need to just talk for a second about this question, and that is, what does it really mean to feel betrayed? Okay, what does betrayal look like for you? How does it impact us? How does betrayal feel? Very important, because if you don't understand that or feel that, it's going to be difficult to know how to get through it. Here's what I want to say about betrayal real quick. When we're betrayed, when we're betrayed, a couple things happen. Number one, our trust in other people is shaken. We begin to lose faith or trust or confidence in other people. When the wound is deep, we question why God will allow us to this to happen at all. Betrayal forces us to ask the question, who or what we have been trusting besides God? Who or what have I been trusting besides God? It forces us to, to do that. The second thing that happens in betrayal is we forget the good stories. The hardship overwhelms us, and we forget where God has been good in the past. We just move on. It, it becomes overwhelming. We think and reside in all of the hard stuff, and we forget the good stories. God doesn't seem predictable is kind of what happens next. Because I trusted him, and here's what happened. Therefore, I'm not sure I can trust him going forward. And then the next step in this is simply this, that we expect others to be God. Uh, because I expected God to provide healing and wholeness for me, I'm not sure he can do it, so I'm going to marry someone who can do that. Because I thought God would give me some security and comfort, and he didn't, I'm going to make enough money so that I don't need God to do that anymore. I'm going to expect others to fulfill what only God can do. And then here's the deal. The cycle goes from the bottom to the top. Because when we expect others to be God, our trust in others is shaken when they are not. When leaders fail us, when friends fail us, when health fails us, when our own best plans fail us, we start going right down the cycle again. Our trust is shaken. We forget the good stories. God doesn't seem predictable. Can't trust him. Maybe I'll trust you. Trusting you for a while, it's working well, and then it falls apart. Everything is shaken. I forget the good stories. God doesn't seem predictable. And here's the problem. Here's the problem. You can't, you can't live life without trusting somebody. And you can't live life without being betrayed. Both are true. And those paradoxes stink. You've got to choose something. You can't live life without trusting people. And you can't live life without being betrayed. Both are true and carry forward. And it stinks, and I wish it were different. And faith is a wager that you make in the middle of that to say that despite the pain and the letdown that I feel, there is still a good God who is here. There's still a good God who is here. Now, let me tell you another story real quick. Uh, there's a guy named Dan Allender. I've referenced him here before. He told me, he, he wrote um, in one of his books, Cry of the Soul. He wrote about his friend Emily, who was in a church softball league, and he said before she took second base, she took second base, excuse me, uh, to get at the top of the inning, and before the first pitch uh, went out, she fell to her knees and then fell down, and ultimately by the, within the hour was in the ER and diagnosed with a brain aneurysm. Her skull was cut open, her brain was lifted up, and at the writing of the chapter, he didn't know if she was going to live or die. And he began to reflect on his experience with his friend Emily, 
and they, they, you know, the, they were friends with a couple, Emily and her husband. And here's what Allender writes about the situation. He met her husband in the hospital. So he goes into the hospital. Here's how he writes about this. He says, her husband, while in shock and grief, also expressed a measure of faith in God. As he told me about his suffering and his hope in God, listen to what Allender said. Allender's sitting there and he's saying, as he told me about this, I felt contempt for him. Isn't that interesting? He said, contempt was certainly not what I wanted or expected to feel. I respect my friend, but that night I felt a growing desire to speak to him realistically, even harshly. Didn't he realize that his wife might die? Why would I feel contempt, he writes, toward a good friend as he offered me a taste of God's goodness in this life? Looking back, I believe it's because I envied his faith. I don't want to go through what he has suffered, and yet he has glimpsed the face of God and has seen his mercy in the midst of sorrow. His life moved toward me with the offer of knowing God better. In response, I flinched, he said. I flinched. And then he wrote, I tried to dull the desire to know God with such deep passion. My contempt blocked God's invitation to trust him in the face of sorrow. It's a powerful statement. I didn't want to know God that way because if I knew God with such deep passion, I might have to face that my heart isn't quite there. He went on to write it this way. He said, my angry question, why don't you do something, God, was an aggressive reaction to fight in order to avoid desire and trust. It was an aggressive reaction to fight in order to avoid desire and trust. Have you ever felt that way? That it's easier to fight desiring to trust God again after all that you have been through. It's easier. It's easier to walk away from faith and not have your faith be so deep as it was when you were younger. You've been through too much junk now that you're older. To have that kind of deep faith, you've seen too much. You've been wounded too much. Your scars are deeper than people know. And here's this invitation of a husband processing his wife's possible death, saying, I, in some ways, I've seen the face of God and the mercy of him in the middle of all this. And Allender's saying, I have contempt for that. I have anger for that because that anger is allowing me to keep from engaging the fact that I don't want to. I don't want to desire anymore. I don't want to trust because I'm tired of being betrayed by life, by God, by people around me. And so how do you, how do you remain faithful to God when you feel betrayed? Let me go back to the story of Joseph for a minute because Joseph later in life had a couple of children. When people think about naming their children, you get a little window into their heart, into what's going on in their life, into what they're thinking. And this is one of the best little windows into Joseph's life and what, he was, what was going on for him. So here's what he did when he was thinking about naming his first kid. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, it is because God has made me forget all my trouble in, my father's, in all my father's household. He named his kid Manasseh. So here's what's going on inside of him. Why? Manasseh means, and it, it sounds like the Hebrew word to forget. 
And the way I read this isn't that Joseph wanted to forget his family, because later we read he was reunited with them. He had love, much love and mercy for his family. But what he's wanting to forget, and the way I read this, is that he is wanting to not allow the narratives of pain and betrayal to become the narrative of his life. He wants to forget in the sense that he wants to remember more God's goodness than to remember the pain of betrayal. And so Manasseh, when I see my son, I'll remember God has been gracious to me to allow me to forget all the pain in the sense, not that it's gone, it's never gone, but I don't recall it the same way that I recall God's mercy and goodness. And then the next verse, he names his next son, and he named his second son Ephraim and said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. And what I see here with Ephraim, he's, this name means like double blessing. And everywhere Joseph went, he was blessed, even in prison, in Potiphar's home, and certainly in the land of Egypt. This idea that, that God can be trusted to bring deliverance, even fruitfulness in the middle of pain. And so he names his two kids, Manasseh and Ephraim, because he's wanting to forget the pain, but remember God's goodness, and to have faith that God will deliver even in the middle of pain. And so when I think about the question of this morning, how do you remain faithful in the middle of betrayal? Here's what I'll say. Here's what I'll say. We remain faithful. We remain faithful through the smallest of memories and the smallest of faith. The smallest of memories and the smallest of faith. I don't need you to have an amazing memory about all the great things God has done, just a small one. If you have any story in your life about how someone has been kind to you when they could have been condemning, that, I would argue, is where you see God. If you have any memory of someone forgiving you when they could have condemned or judged you, that, I would argue, is where you see God, even if it's small. If you have a hundred people who betray you, but you have one coach, one teacher, one friend, one uncle or aunt or grandmother who listened to you and saw you and was compassionate and merciful in the middle of your life. This is where you see God. We remain faithful through the smallest of memories that bring us back to God, just like Manasseh. We forget the pain in light of the goodness and the smallness of faith. You've heard about faith that moves mountains. Sometimes in the middle of pain, you just need faith that moves a particle of dust. Forget the mountain for a minute. I just need to move a particle of dust. That's it. Jesus talks about the faith of a, um, of a mustard seed, small little seed that has incredible results. The smallest of faith is this sense that says, I don't really know that God can handle all of this, but just for this moment right now, I'm going to let him have this. The smallest of faith and the smallest of memories. This is when you know you win the battle. Just like Alan wrote about, there's a battle about Am I going to desire and trust again in the middle of all the betrayal that I have? How are you ever going to win that battle? You will know that you win the battle over your own soul when you allow the smallest of memories and the smallest of faith to guide you through the harshest of times and the harshest of pain. Now, with that being said, two questions, then we're going to wrap it up. Number one is this. Who or what might you need to remember again? Who or what might you need to remember again? Who or what might you need to think all right, before I just walk away from all of this, who or what has God brought to mind that I need to remember this? I need to remember this. In the nation of Israel, it was the crossing of the Red Sea. It was the exodus. It was the deliverance. That was their key thing. And I'm going to be honest with you. Sometimes in the middle of my pain, what do I remember? It's beyond my generation. I just remember the, the facts of the cross. 
All right? I mean, take it out of my lifetime. Sometimes that's all that I can do. It's all that I can do. Because sometimes pain and darkness is too overwhelming for me. Sometimes all I can do is remember that. Like, somehow God thought it good to send his son Jesus to this planet to redeem me. What do I need to remember again? The second question is related to that. Who or what might I need to believe again? Who or what might I need to believe again, even just in a small, small way? Joseph's story tells us, <laughs> I don't know who else has an equally horrible story of betrayal, family, circumstances, leadership, for years and years and years. A bad deal. And in the moment when he had a chance to push it aside and go his own way in front of Pharaoh, he said, listen, I can't do it, but God will. But God will. Not because he's done it for me in the past couple of years I've been in prison, but I just know him. I know he will. Smallest of memories of God's goodness, the smallest of faith that he can. That's the battle for our soul in the middle of betrayal. Who or what might you need to remember and who or what might you need to believe again? Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thanks for the chance to be here this morning to revisit a story that some of us have known for a long time, the story of Joseph. I pray that you would help us not to forget the very human element of this, of really what a man went through and the deep betrayal and loss one feels in a situation like what Joseph went through. Father, I thank you for being faithful to him and being present with him even though the circumstances didn't change. And some of us are going through deep pain, some of it private pain, some of it that no one else knows in the room. It's hard to know what to do. It's, it's disorienting. And sometimes there's people around us, and if we'll let them in a way, they're inviting us to desire and trust again. They're like the husband in Allender's story who have a ray of hope in the middle of what seems like incredibly hopeless situations. And I pray that you would allow those stories to warm our hearts so that we can see again your mercy and your invitation, not to let our hearts get so hard, even in the middle of pain, but that we cannot let betrayal overcome us, that we can remember stories of your goodness and be moved by faith, even in the smallest of ways. So Father, give us courage, heal us, Give us the patience and grace to move forward with what we know we need to do. Father, we love you and thank you for the time together. In Jesus' name, amen.